We are live from the great state of Tennessee. I'm your host, Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoid, a podcast where we break down conspiracy theories and unsolved mysteries and separate fact from fiction. So real real quickly, story of the week, Indiana Congressman Andre Carson is calling for a deeper investigation into UFOs. He went on the CBS show, um, the Sunday CBS show called Face the Nation. He says he wants congressional hearings on the issue following the Pentagon report on the UFO sightings that can't be explained. Um, Basically what he says, direct quote, if there is technology out there that we can't explain, that has huge implications for the safety and security of the American people, Um, which is what I've been saying this entire time. He says, even though the report didn't give us all the answers, I think it's very significant because it represents a big shift in the way our intelligence handles the issue. Um, At this time, like I said, He does not have a timetable on when congressional hearings could happen, but it is very interesting that things are starting to pick up speed. They made the FBI with even though so that's the whole story if the FBI released everything they know, but they at least came out like, hey, FBI, CIA, you got to release what you know. Now, here we are. And he said, we're still far away. He's just one person doesn't have that much power. But now we're starting to see the push towards actual congressional hearings, which would be interesting. They said these are all public events. So we'll be able one day, they said whenever this will happen, these things take time. It may not be till next year, probably. But now we're to the point now to where we might actually have congressional hearings where we all, all our politicians go sit in that room and someone's got to say something. Like I said, I don't think the truth is going to come out from there. But like I said, we're picking up steam. You know, people, like I said, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, a congressman wasn't going to come out and be like, hey, we need to investigate UFOs or anything. But now we're to the point where more and more people on both lines, Democrat and Republican, are coming out and saying we need more information. So it said we're just getting closer and closer. Now, if you're not a UFO person, then you're like, oh, this is a waste of time. But if you're like me, this is super nerdy and super exciting. The fact that our, a bunch of our politicians should be sitting and having an actual talk about UFOs. It's actually pretty exciting, regardless of what actually comes out of it. So the movement is slowly growing. Like I said, it doesn't mean aliens. These people usually aren't talking about aliens. They're more worried about North Korea, China. But regardless, we need to find out what is flying above our head. And eventually, like I said, if we don't know, I think we once the push gets great enough, we will eventually find out. But for now, let's go ahead and jump into the actual story for today. Anyone that knows me, whether that be personally or on social media, anyone that knows anything about me knows that I love food. I have an Instagram, hasn't been very active lately, but I have an Instagram literally called Patrick Eats where I used to go around and try different restaurants, different food, just because I love to eat. But specifically, I love dessert. I love cake. I love cheesecake. I love candy. Like, I just love sweets. My sugar rush is just always going at all times. Like, I just, I love desserts, and it's just always been like that since I was a kid. So, for me personally, I know just about every dessert out there, whether it's here in America or from other countries. If it's a dessert, I know about it, or if it's a candy. And you, if you're any type of candy person, or know anything about candy in general, and I'm assuming you've heard of the candy called Pocky. Um, this is an international um, candy. It's basically, uh, it kind of looks like a very skinny cigar, but they're like chocolate. They come in different flavors, but the most popular flavor, usually chocolate, but they're like biscuit sticks. They're little skinny biscuit sticks 
with different flavors, usually chocolate or strawberry on them. And you do not like at Walmart, obviously, but if you ever go to like your local Asian market, they will definitely be right there near the front, probably near a cash register. Um, so if you have any kind of experience with other cultures or know anything about desserts, you've definitely seen this before. Um, and I'm sure they have them. I know that they have them on like Amazon. And over time, I'm sure maybe some Walmarts have them. So they're not super mainstream here, but they are here in America if you really want them. But it's probably the most popular international candy dessert, at least in America. And this company has actually been around for a long time. Um, I honestly didn't know much about the background. I've had them plenty of times before, but I didn't really know much about the background. But this company obviously was started in Asia and has been around for a good while. And the reason why I bring this up is because the name of the actual company is called Gilco. And obviously the founders is the Gilco family. So we're going to jump back to the great year of 1984. And again, this all takes place in Asia. So I am going to completely butcher some names. I apologize. I don't know if that would offend anybody that I didn't take time to learn these people's names, but I'm not good with names, even here in America. So I'm going to butcher these names pretty bad. I'm going to try my best to get the names right. But the man that we're talking about today, or at least we're starting talking about, his name is Katushia Azaki, and he is the president of the company is called Azaki Gilco. Um, he is the grandson of the founder um, of the Gilco family. So we go to him. Obviously, this is a very successful thing about how many people buy it here. That means it's super, super big overseas where it's actually originally from. So we're talking about a very well off, very well good to go family. Um, I would assume they're very rich. And before we really jump into it, this is a very, it's a story that you've seen on the movies. You see, I mean, these are plots of any kind of movies you've ever seen. The rich person gets kidnapped. They ask for a ransom. And then there's an entire story that goes into, do you pay the ransom? Do you not? Like we've seen this on just about every TV show, every movie. But this one is a combination of a lot of different true crime type of things. We got your normal abduction, ransom type situation. But then this goes into um, Zodiac Killer type things where these people start teasing the police because they can't get caught. So there's a lot of, so if you know, if you listen to my podcast, you know anything about true crime, there's these people, some of the most notorious, either serial killers or just bad people in the world, they love to tease the police. They don't want to do things and never be seen again, whether it's attention or what the issue is. These people are doing this because they want to be on the news and they want to be pursued. Like some people commit crimes and they don't ever want to be heard from or seen from again. That's most people that commit crime. But you got these psychopaths that literally want people to keep looking for them and like literally give clues to help them, the police out to try to find them. And that's the kind of wormhole we go down today. It's a lot of different crazy things going on and a pretty intense story. Like I said, we're not talking about some small little company. We're talking about basically like the Snickers or Kit Kat of Asia. 
like where it's an international story. I don't do many international stories. So it may be hard for you to really comprehend what is going on here. But we're talking about the way we kind of see like a Jeff Bezos or any or a Bill Gates, like those type people. That's just the, the type of family we're talking about here in Asia. So I want you to put this into perspective. We're not talking about just some random rich people. We're talking about the actual creators of the most popular candy in Asia. And that's what makes this story so crazy and so different from some of the other stories that I have gone over. And like I said, it's a pretty intense, pretty crazy wormhole. And like I said, the police get really, 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 really close. But I don't want to spoil it for you. This is the story of the monster with 21 faces. So we jump to March 18th of 1984. As I said, we are talking about the Ozaki family. And like I said, they're in a very, I don't know exactly what kind of neighborhood they live in, but I have to assume that they live in a very well-off neighborhood. Um, he had a long, difficult day at work and decided to unwind with a nice and relaxing bath as the rest of the family got ready for bed. In the house next door to him is his 70-year-old mother and she lived by herself and this was a sunday evening right before 9 p.m and the mother's home by herself getting ready for the end of the day when two men in white ski masks holding guns forced their way into her home obviously there was nothing that she was going to be able to do to defend herself so they basically captured her and binded her to the chair um but the men were not interested in harming or robbing her in fact, they only wanted her for one single thing. All they wanted with her was wanted from her is the key to the neighboring house. And that is where the woman's son, Kazaki, uh, Katusaki Azaki, that's where he lived with his wife and three children. So thankfully, I mean, it's a bad situation, but thankfully they're not interested in harming her. They don't even want anything from her except for the key. And like I said, they're, they're, they have guns. She's going to comply, and they get the key. So shortly after this, the two masked men quietly got into the home next door, so using the key for access. And um, Azaki's wife and daughter were quick, quickly captured by the masked men. Like I said, um, one had a pistol, one had a rifle. The mother and daughter were quickly bound to another chair, and... The wife tried to negotiate with the two men who said at this time, similar to what was going on with the mother, um, to Azaki's mother next door, she started negotiating with them, you know, name your price, name what you want. You can have whatever, thinking that they were just regular robbers, but they were not interested in money and they were not interested in speaking to her. Their only thing that they were there for was for the husband. And they began going through the house, also in the process, cutting all the phone lines. So they obviously can't call the police. Um, these people are somewhat, except we'll, we'll get more into this as time goes on. The two other children were sleeping in their bedroom and they were not bound or messed with. They quietly left them alone and let them sleep. So these people, they're bad people, obviously, but they're not 
crazy psychopaths or anything crazy. So they didn't hit these people. They didn't abuse these people. They let the kids sleep through all of this. So like I said, it's an interesting thing we'll get into as we talk more about these people behind this. So Azaki had been taking a bath at the time that all this was going on. Obviously, he had no clue what was going on. He didn't even realize what was going on until the masked men were basically outside the bathroom. And then they came in the bathroom. So basically, long story short, he's taking a bath and he gets walked in on while he's taking a bath, which is pretty unfortunate because it's probably about as defenseless as you can be not having any clothes on. So he began screaming and was prepared to fight for his family. But the masked men told him that he and his family would be harmed if he did not cooperate. So Zedazaki, thinking about his family, allowed himself to be taken by the two men. And like I said, at this entire time, all this is going on, he is naked. So he's basically captured naked, rushed into a vehicle that was waiting outside that was left running, and it sped off into the dark. And from there, the investigation basically picked up steam pretty quickly. So we're talking about a family of this magnitude. Um, it's not going to take long. So we're at the morning of March 19th now of 1984. And the police are basically trying to find out what exactly is the motivation for this crime. And the big thing is they started a nationwide blackout on any information pertaining to this case. So the news any kind of local beats, any of that stuff. Nobody could know anything about this. Like they kept it completely under wraps. Like I said, this is a big time family. They're able to make moves like this that are happening. So obviously these are good detectives. They know what's going on. So the fact that the kidnappers went to the mother's house next door only to get a key makes the police believe that the gunmen were familiar with the family. Now, the question is, are these people that the family actually know or were have they kind of just been watching and observing? They said that's what they're trying to figure out. But these people, it wasn't just random. This was literally a mission specifically to kidnap this guy. And eventually, they said early that morning, they found the ransom note that was left behind um, at a phone booth near the crime scene. And the note was demanding a ransom of approximately 1 billion yen, which is at that time the equivalent of $4.5 million, which means I can't do the math, but that's even more, almost like probably like seven, eight million in today's money. In addition to the cash demand, the kidnappers also demanded 220 pounds of gold bullion. Um, that is worth about 1.3 million. And because of this, this made this is a super hard demand to meet in a short period of time. Um, and it was because, like I said, if you're talking about 4.5 million, that takes time to get anyway, but they can technically get it. But they want gold. Gold isn't just sitting around somewhere. So, like I said, this is just causing a that just throws a big wrench into all this. So, together, the demand basically came out to about six million dollars um, in US dollars. Altogether, it was the largest ransom demand ever made in Japanese history. And I think that still stands to this day. So now that they find the ransom note, the police now okay, at least have an understanding about why he was abducted, but still odd as to why he had been targeted. Um, 
And from there, the mystery continues to grow. Now, here's where the story starts to get crazy. So on March 21st, three days later, Azaki manages to escape. He returns to his family after fleeing a warehouse in the Osaka city of Ibaraki. Um, unfortunately, he was unable to give the police any real information. Um, he was able to point the police to the warehouse he had been held captive in, but there seemed to be no clues pointing to the identity of the culprits. Um, he spoke about it, but he spoke about what happened, but he wasn't able to give much information. He claimed that he had a bag over his head for pretty much the entire time and had been provided some clothing. Because Remember, he was taken completely naked, so they gave him some clothing. They fed him juice and crackers and told him that his eight-year-old daughter was also being held captive, which was not true. Um, he was the only one from the family that was kidnapped, but I guess they kind of told him that, so he wouldn't do anything crazy. But despite that, like I said, he was able, according to him, he was able to loosen his rope bindings and kick down a door, and he fled down the street barefoot. However, Azaki told the police that other than a few scratches on his face, the kidnappers had not harmed him, and he believed that they had been carrying toy guns. Um, something that is interesting is firearms at this time, it might still be the case, but at this time, firearms were actually illegal. Like guns were not legal in um, Japan at all during this time. So that kind of makes sense. How he knows that, I'm not sure. But like I said, he's able to, he's not able to provide any kind of anything like he's gone for three days like I said, this is the part that confuses me he's gone for three days they ask for the ransom but like they don't talk to him and he gets no information he's able to escape they tell him that his eight-year-old daughter is there and he doesn't go looking for her like there's just a lot of just weird things going on here but i guess the important thing at the time is that he has escaped and for the moment, they think that this is possibly behind them, but they are dead wrong. While they did go a few weeks with nothing, thinking that it was going to be fine, about on April 10th, 1984, they basically, this group comes back, not to his house, but this time to his actual job. They set fire to several vehicles in the company's headquarters parking lots, and then they would start a second fire on company, company property. Then on April 16th, a plastic container full of hydrochloric acid was found in a Gilco company building in Ibaraki, that city where he was being held captive. But because the container was found inside a Gilco company building, basically this was kind of a threat, a sign that these people had access to the property, which means that, you know, they could be anywhere in the, his Gilco facilities at any time. Like the Certain the fires were outside, but once they actually started doing these threats inside, that's when it really starts to get creepy because now they know these people really have access to everything that he has. Alongside with this plastic container of hydrochloric acid, they had also left a letter which was addressed to Gilco and demanded another one-time payment to end the harassment. About the same time, a similar letter was sent to the media which basically was taunting the police who had done absolutely nothing at this time. They obviously didn't apprehend anybody and they were able, not able to even identify anybody that was involved. Like they were so far off. Um, they were making no progress. 
So the note that they send to the to the media says, quote, to the stupid police, are you idiots? If you were pros, you would catch us. Because you guys have such a high handicap, we're going to give you some hints. The letter went on to include the following hints. That the getaway vehicle in the abduction of Azaki was gray and that the abductors had purchased food from a well-known supermarket chain. They further taunted the police by speculating, quote, should we kidnap the hell of police, the head of police? And then at the end, this note was signed. Um, I'm not going to read the word that it actually says in Japanese because I cannot read that. But basically, it is translated to, quote, the monster with 21 faces. And that is what basically, like I said, that was the beginning of what the media and what people would begin to start to call this mysterious either person or group, we assume group, but that is how they got their name. And it only began to grow from there. They continued to send letters to Gilco, to the police, to the press, still demanding these millions of dollars that they were never getting. And like I said, at the end of every single letter was their signature the monster with 21 faces now this was while it is very disturbing it's only not really hurting anyone i mean no one has died nothing has actually happened um outside of the kidnapping but now like i said they're either they're not happy or they're getting bored i'm not sure what it is but they begin to take it up a different to a different notch and they begin to um basically make to infer that they had um, poisoned some of Gilco's products with potassium cyanide. And like I said, if this was administered properly, if they actually put it in the candy the right way, this would result in literally hundreds of thousands of deaths. Like I said, these candy is everywhere. Like I said, we're here in the United States. So in Japan, it is everywhere. So they threatened that they had poisoned his candy with potassium cyanide. So basically, we're talking about a mass poisoning on a scale that has not been seen anywhere in the world at this point. Um, not anything to do with candy or food of this sort. And like I said, they were doing this as a threat to extort Gilco for money. Gilco did not give in to these demands for money. He um, basically was forced to pull all his products off the store shelves, all his products. This resulted in an absolutely massive loss for the company. Um, basically they lost $21 million worth of products just because they didn't know if it was real or not. I mean, you can't take that risk. One person dying is too many, but we're talking about thousands of deaths. If this is actual, if this is actually legitimate. Now here's the interesting, another interesting thing about this. They lost 21 million. This is more than three times the amount of the ransom money that was demanded when he got kidnapped. Now, that is interesting. Now, like I said, we're gonna we'll get to some conclusions later, but there was a $6 million ransom. He didn't wanna pay that. And now here we are, they're asking for it again. And instead of paying it, he takes a $21 million loss. Just think about that here for a second. In addition, Gilco's stock price had taken a huge hit. Um, and in total, like I said, we're talking about all the stuff coming off the shelves and then people are not coming back. They're like, okay, yeah, you took the first ones off the shelf, but I'm not eating your stuff again, not while you have this going on. So basically they reported on their next, you know, their next quarter, they had lost a hundred, uh, estimated 130 million 
dollars in sales because of all this. Ultimately, Gilco had to lay off about a thousand employees um, just because business was being so bad. Um, but from what we, uh, from at least from what we gather, from I guess the intel from them checking it, it was later learned that the entire thing was actually a well orchestrated hoax. So basically, yes, the monster of twenty one faces really to kidnap him, but they didn't poison any candy. Like so they went through and tested it, and it was all thrown away for nothing. Which you can't blame them. I mean, you can't call your their bluff in that situation, but. It is crazy and interesting that all this happened and there was no actual poison candy. Again, over the next several weeks, more fires will be started on Gilco's property, adding to you know the allure, the myth that this organization was always present everywhere and they're not going anywhere. Now, shortly after this, someone that was claiming to be part of the Monster with 21 Faces contacted Gilco and told them that a payment of $1.3 million would end the harassment for good. They said, we started at $6 million. I don't know why. I guess they're just trying to get what they can get. But now it's like, okay, we've been harassing you. You've lost so much money. What's $1.3 million now? Just give us $1.3 million and we'll go away. But for whatever reason, he did not pay the ransom. He held his ground. He was not going to give in to these people. So we continue on and on and on. And again, while all this harassing of Gilco is going on, they continue to write letters to the press that are taunting the police. Um, the letters constantly blame the police for failing to catch them and continued expressing intimate details of the crimes, giving the police no doubt that the people that were writing these letters were the actual ones that did it. Like I so said, they weren't talking about just generic letters that was you know, a hoax. They're giving deep specific details about these crimes to let them know that these are the actual people that are writing these letters. Now, what is interesting is at one point in this, the police thought they came close to identifying a member of this group when they found some um, surveillance footage. The footage apparently showed a man wearing a giant baseball cap in a convenience store. Um, he was also wearing a business suit and glasses. This man appeared to be putting what looked like Gilco candy on the shelves. And this is only interesting because at this time, all this is going on. The Gilco candy had been recalled and was not being sold in stores. So basically, this man's on footage putting Gilco candy on the shelves. And like I said, that's obviously a giant red flag. And the police sent this video clip out and photo stills to news outlets, hoping someone would come forward to identify the man. Unfortunately, the identity of this man still remains unknown today, and he has become known as the case of, quote, the videotape man. Then in June of 1984, the Monsters with 21 Faces basically comes out and uh, issues a sort of peace treaty. Um, this was addressed to, quote, our fans throughout Japan, which is interesting. I'm assuming, I guess, you know, they did have fans for whatever reason. People or everybody, Bundy, Ted Bundy had fans. So I'm assuming these people had fans. But in this letter, they announced that they were going to be taking it easy on Gilco from now on. Um, the quote is, the president of Gilco has already gone around with his head hanging down long enough. We would like to forgive him. Then they wrote that they, quote, had become bored with this affair 
and were heading to Europe to escape the muddy Japanese summer. Quote, Japan has gotten terribly hot and humid. So when our work is done and we want to go to Europe, Geneva, Paris, London, we'll be in one of those places. Let's bring Pocky, the traveler's friend. Delicious Gilco products. We're eating them too. See you in January of next year. And that was obviously not expected. Super shocking. Um, for no reason at all. They just got bored. Uh, the police weren't doing their job and they basically moved on. Um, like I said, they had not given any ransoms or given into any demands at this time. And they just randomly backed off. But while this may have been the end for Gilco, the this group was not done just yet. The company now shifted their target to um, the company's called Miradai. This company was known as Miradai Food, which basically created meat products like sausage and ham. So they took a few weeks off, and after they're done with Gilco, they start harassing the Maradi family. And basically, they announced, if you pay us 50 million yen, they will leave them alone. And obviously, people know what's going on with Gilco, so they know that they're good for their word if that if you don't pay up, we're going to keep harassing you. So here we are at about 50 million yen, which is $250,000 at this time in America. They agreed that if you paid us this money, like I said, um, we would leave you alone. And they gave a plan to deliver this money on a train that was headed to Osako to Kyoto. So we're here on June 28, 1984. We have a police investigator that disguises himself as an employee of Miradai. He hops on the train where he was supposed to be on the lookout for a white flag hanging outside. As soon as he saw this flag, he was supposed to toss the bag of money he was carrying, where it would then be picked up by a member of the monster with 21 faces. So basically, they have this whole plan. You know, they're not even picking it up and then getting in a car. They're literally sitting in a moving train. And once you see our train, you toss the money in and we keep going. Um, it's a pretty interesting plan, um, but obviously this doesn't end up coming to fruition because while riding on the plane, the undercover police officer notices a sp suspicious looking man, um, and he later describes him as being physically large with short hair, glasses, and, quote, eyes like those of a fox. He kept his distance from him, but made a mental note that the man seemed to be eyeing him and remained in eyesight of him the entire time. The officer waited to see the signal to toss the bag full of money, which was the white flag, but the white flag never came. So he rode the train all the way to Kyoto and prepared to, prepared to take the next train back to Osaka. But while he's doing this, he noticed that this mysterious man, quote, the fox-eyed man, also decides to do the same thing and get back on the train back to Osaka. So they both get back in the train and go back to where they came from. and. For from there, like I said, he's continuing to watch this man. But once they get back to Osaka, the, um, somehow the police officer, the investigator loses him and they dispatch another undercover operator to tell him. But they basically both end up losing their trail. And this man somehow, some way manages to get away. The fox eyed man would later be, no, um, like I said, what they called him 
will become the public face of the monster with 21 faces, even though we never actually confirmed he was a member of the group. Um, we assume he was. Why was he on this plane and then just why was he on this train and then just turn around and get back on the train back home? And it's pretty much common sense. He notices the police officer. So he never puts up the white flag and he just goes back. That's basically what we assume happened. But we were never able to identify him. So nothing really comes out of this. But basically, long story short, the police who had an eye on one of the people and somehow, some way, even though we're on the train where you can't really run away, they still manage to get away. It doesn't make much sense. But like I said, we had a super close call to catching one of these guys. But these police here got to be absolutely incompetent. And after this, they left this company alone. And basically, they kind of just picked and choose, chose random companies, just harassing companies all over Japan or um, over and over for a couple of weeks. And they just would rotate and rotate. None were really that big until we get to their next victim, um, which is called Morianga, um, another company, candy company that was based out of Tokyo. So for whatever reason, I don't know if they're just fed up, bored, but they're escalated. Now things are really starting to get escalated. In October of 1984, a letter was sent to several news agencies. This one was addressed to, quote, moms of the nation. And this was similar to the story from before. It says, quote, to moms throughout Japan, in autumn, when the appetites are strong, sweets are really delicious. When you think sweets, no matter what you say, is Morianga. We've added some special flavor. The flavor of potassium cyanide is a little bitter. It won't cause tooth decay, so buy the sweets for your kids. We've attached a notice on these bitter sweets that they contain poison. We've put 20 boxes in stores from Hakata to Tokyo. So immediately after this, obviously, police began to search all cities, all stores and cities of, across Japan and actually found more than a dozen of these tainted items. Um, the thing that is interesting about this is that they were, what they said was true. There was actually labels put on these candies that said, danger, contains poison, if you eat this, you'll die. The monster with 21 faces. So this time, we actually are, like they actually legitimately did something. Um, and in the coming weeks, more letters will be received. Um, this one says, quote, Morianga is best when it comes to confectionery, but their products now taste a bit better since we've added a special seasoning of sodium cyanide. Now, the previous time they put the label on there, but they weren't actually poisoned. But this time, one, the packages were not labeled this time. So it was almost impossible to identify them and a similar panic began to play out that happened for Gilco. Basically, all the company's products had to be pulled from the shelves and tested for any trace of cyanide. And in 1984, Moringa would experience a 60% dip in sales, basically similar to what happened to Gilco. And he had to let go of roughly 450 employees and their stock price dip so much that the Japanese government had to step in and basically encourage private investigators to buy stock just to keep the company afloat. Now, months later, in February of 1985, the police would find several more Morianga products 
that were actually laced. And this was the big moment. Now, all these different times they were making these threats. Yes, you had to follow them and take the stuff out because you couldn't take the risk, but nothing was actually in them. But now here, almost a year into this, they have finally found products that actually had sodium cyanide in it. And so this means that these guys are not bluffing anymore. They are now prepared to make good on their threats. And that is the scary part. Like I said, you, you have to take it seriously anyway, but you kind of relieve a sigh of relief knowing that nothing was actually in it. But now that we know that they are actually legitimately poisoning these products, now things are kind of taken to a different gear. And from there, it just kept going on and going on, like I said, from different company to different companies. Like I said, now we know they're actually poisoning these candies. Like the police are taking these situations way more seriously, but they're still not coming up with anything. So by this time, we're now in the summer of 1985 and the public has finally had enough. So now they begin to scrutinize the police for failing to capture these individuals. Um, like I said, these guys, from what we see, are actually amateurs. And like I said, the police are just getting embarrassed. They're getting poked fun at on the media through from these people. And they said the public is just fed up. So eventually there were calls for police officials to step down from their officials, from their positions so that someone else could step in and get this resolved. So that summer, Soji Yamanato. He was the ninth. He was a 59-year-old police superintendent. Um, he was relieved of his spot and was reassigned to something pretty much lower. Um, he had overseen the operation earlier last year that went bad, and he took that failure personally and apologized to the public for his officers being unable to solve this. Following this dismissal, like I said. People everywhere take their jobs seriously, but especially Asian countries, like they have a lot of pride. They don't want to embarrass their name. They don't want to embarrass their family. So he took this very, very hard. And on August 7th, 1985, just a few days after being removed from his position, Yoshi Shoshi Yamanato basically put him, lit himself on fire in his backyard. He poured kerosene all over his body and lit himself on fire and he died in his backyard. A couple of days, a few days later on August 12th, the monster with 21 faces sent their last known message to the media. Um, and this is exactly what it says. It says, quote, Yamanato of Shikshiga police died. How stupid of him. We've got no friends or secret hiding place in Shiga. It's Yoshina or Shikata who should have died. What have they been doing for as long as one year and five months? Don't let us bad guys get away with it. There are many more fools who want to copy us. No career Yamanato died like a man. So we decided to give our condolences. We decided to forget about torturing food companies. If anyone blackmails any of the food making companies, it is not us, but someone copying us. That means we've got more to do than bullying companies. It's fun to lead a bad man's life. Monster with 21 faces. And they were never seen again after that. There were other groups that tried to come forward and basically copycat them, but they were nowhere near successful and it was nothing. It was nothing actually interesting uh, or not interesting, but nothing of substance actually came. People tried to copy like there's always copycat cases. 
but nothing really happened. So from what we know, they actually really did retire. And this is interesting. Like I said, this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. They never actually hurt anyone. And even from the beginning, like I said, the family members, they let the kids sleep through the whole kidnapping situation, the whole um, abduction situation. And now that someone has actually died from this, they decide to retire. So from what I can gather from this, even though they did actually end up poisoning some things, seems like they actually didn't want anyone to actually get hurt from this. And once someone did actually get hurt from this, they retired, which doesn't make them good people. They're still terrible people for doing this. But I don't think that these were just crazy joker type people just been on world domination. Like, I don't know if this was just a troll job that they just got stuck in and kept going. But they actually, from what I can see, actually didn't want to hurt anyone. Now, even though they were never seen again, the police obviously still did try to find them. Um, and this went on for years. Um, they, they had 28,000 tips and they investigated 125,000 persons of interest. For all we know, they may have actually talked to the specific person if they interviewed that many people, but they never brought anyone in. And this case remains unsolved to this day. Um, the case basically expired in March of 1994 um, and was officially closed on February 13th of 2000 when the statute of limitations on everything that happened had officially expired. So with that being the case, even if someone associated with this group came forward, there is nothing that can be done to prosecute them. But still to this day, no one has come forward to claim being a part of this. And there are a couple of different theories out there. Um, usually at the end of every episode, I can give you at least some kind of solid conclusion, but there's really no, there's a bunch of different theories. Um, the most pressing theory is is that it was a former uh, employee of, of Gilco, the person that this first started with. Um, there was one specific person, I can't remember their name, but there was one specific person that they brought in that matched the description, but they had a solid alibi for most of these things. So while that still could have been the person or could have been someone orchestrated it, it's not really likely because I don't know why they would go on to mess with basically 20 other companies. Like if it was just the Gilco thing, then I can understand, but I don't get if it was a former Gilco employee, why they would do this. Now, the other theory is pretty intriguing. Not sure if it's true, but it is very intriguing seeing that I'm a person that is in the stock market pretty often. Someone, there's a theory out there basically that states these people were doing this basically to manipulate the stock market. Like these are, you know, not small companies, they're big companies. So they were basically making these companies take all their stuff off the stocks to off their, off the stores. And like I said, all their stocks absolutely dropped. Now, I don't know about these other companies. I would assume they're still open, but obviously Pocky is still going strong, which means that Gilco eventually recovered. So what people think is that these people were purposely trying to tank the stocks of these big companies and then buy in a ton while they were super low, knowing that eventually years later, they would end up 
coming back. And it is an interesting theory. It's a very, very, very interesting theory. It doesn't get us closer to who did it at all. But like I said, there had to have been a reason. And it makes me, and it is a very interesting theory because they didn't actually hurt anyone. And the moment someone actually died, they quit. So while I'm not going to say for a fact that's the conclusion, I think that has something to do with it. I think it was a group of people. And I think it could have been a group of different people. It could have been maybe one disgruntled employee that wanted payback and then maybe one smart person that came up with a plan and then another person that was like into the stock market that was able to put it together. I think it was a team. I don't think it's one solid answer. I mean, from what I gather from reading, doing research, I think that it was a group of people with different interests kind of like on a movie, you know, you put together a suicide squad or different kind of teams. They all got their different interests. And it's kind of like the enemy of the, of my enemy is my friend. One hates the stock market. They all hated corporate America and they came together to basically manipulate the market and get payback on corporate America. I mean, that sounds like the most logical explanation. Like I said, it doesn't give us an answer. We'll never know unless they come forward. We'll never know who exactly it is, but I think we at least can get an idea of why they did what they did. And like I said, this is not too long ago. 1984 is not a long time ago. If these people are not were not like 60 at the time, there's a pretty good chance that they are alive. And odds are, like I said, seeing Pocky is doing well and these other things are doing well, there's a pretty good chance that they're probably well off. So if you go to Japan, you drive through some rich neighborhood or see someone driving a really nice car, there's a pretty good chance, not a pretty good chance, but there's a chance that that could be the person. They, like I said, they disappeared and, you know, they either had families or started families and they went off and they just lived their regular life and said they made a vow together never to come out and say it. Like I said, even though they couldn't be charged for it anymore, it still would be a huge thing. Like you not to come out and admit you're criminals. So like I said, they disappeared. They may have even left Japan with the money that they got, started a new life. And the mystery of the monster of 21 faces will just never be solved. That is all I got for today. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. Definitely unique, unique, unique episode. Something I'm assuming you've never heard. Love to try to love to try to change it up every now and then and give you some different type of stories. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Patrick Simpson. We'd love to hear your thoughts, any kind of theories, any kind of anything you have about this episode, what you think it might have been, um, what kind of people you think it might have been. As always, hit me up on there. I love to discuss the episodes. If you haven't pressed subscribe, take a quick second just to press that button so you can get the episodes as soon as they drop. And we'll be back next Monday with a very new episode. My name is Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoid.